Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It's always good when Julian Emanuel comes in with BTIG here at the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios, because if you go through his research note, he writes, he doesn't write like a 14-page special where you're, you know, you're like, God, I wish you'd write shorter. They're these little gorgeous bursts. Let's start with a look back. It was a bear market. A lot of people aren't saying that. They're saying it was just Q4, but it was a real bear market. No question about it. And, and from our point of view, that's part of the story of why the rebound the first six months of this year has been, you know, so strong and has caught a lot of people by surprise. Is the rebound, and this goes back to fancy technical analysis, a bounce in a an intermediate bounce within a bear market? Uh, no, we actually think that if, if you look at it, the, the big picture since uh, the bottom in 2009, yeah, uh, the support point- Lehman had, was a brokerage firm, you might remember them. <laughs> I do remember Thank that. Thank you, okay, um, uh, The 200-week moving average has been the support line for every one of these sell-offs. You touched right from that. So from our point of view, the, the, bull, the secular bull market is intact pending further developments, but that's the default. All right, so the, the S&P is up 16% plus uh, year to date. One of the areas that has really lagged has been energy. Is there any love there? I know there's been some M&A in this space, people looking for value, but uh, for the average investor, is there anything in the energy space that you think they should be looking at? Well, I think you are now under 5% of the weight in the S&P 500 in the energy space. You are you know, knocking on the door of $60 WTI. The, the fact that uh, geopolitical tension looks to be rising, not declining, um, against the backdrop of if you actually have some sort of at least rapprochement of a, of a sort this weekend in Osaka, the likelihood is the, is the global economy will be backstop. And it's a very positive um, situation for energy shares, totally unloved. Are they, what's the valuation here? I mean, is this something where I feel like, the, you know, they're pricing in a lot of risk here. There's uncertainty about uh, where oil is going to go. Am I getting, if I go in here, am I getting in a good valuation, do you think? Uh, it, it, it's sort of fair. Okay. Um, it, it, but, but what's important is, is at, at the t energy stocks have had a historical tendency to, you know, at least play along with the oil price. Um, or if not outperform on the upside and underperform on the downside. They are more volatile. You haven't seen that this cycle. And so from our point of view, when you think about the fact uh, that there is uh, capital allocation going on in the form of M&A and buybacks, it's an area that to us right. is likely have under consolidation. I, I put you in a group with our Gina Martin-Adams at Bloomberg Intelligence and that you've had courage to be in the market through thick and thin. There's been nuances of a Julian Emanuel view, but you've been, you've been in the game since Lehman Lowe. Okay, great. Rejustify now why I need to own shares, not sell the shares I own, and even put new cash to work. I mean, set out the next 24 months of why I need to be in the market. Because there isn't likely to be a recession, number one. And, and you know, true bear markets are a he result. Doesn't, he's better looking than Tony Dwyer. 
Oh yeah. I mean, I mean he sounds like Tony Dwyer of Canaccord Genuity, but but he's better looking. Continue. And and again, think about it. We know there isn't going to be a recession because President Trump like every other president at this point in, in their cycle right. in office, is thinking uh, behind every decision, how do I get reelected? And the way you get okay. reelected is making sure the economy keeps growing. And against interest rates at this level, stocks represent value. Still. Okay, they represent value. Is it because they're great or because there's no place else to go with my money? I think that's been part of the message of the last several months, particularly given... Our clients have become much more concerned with global yields 10 years out, 30 years out, 100 years out, being as low as they are. See how Greenfield's trained him so well? (laughs) He comes in here from BTIG, and he's got on the red and blue stripe tie. So we don't know what the politics is involved here, <laughs> exactly. given, the, given the debate and all. So, Julian, if I'm, you know, looking at these yields that are, you know, around the world, you know, it's just so low, no matter where you look. Do I need to go to emerging markets here to get some return, get, get some yield? Well, we think emerging markets are interesting here simply because there's a lot of reasons to think that the dollar has come off the boil. Um, and the Fed certainly is one of them. Uh, but again, the way we're looking at, uh, look, the event risk over the next number of days is that you're reasonably fully priced in the near term in the S&P 500. Things don't move in a straight line. They haven't for the last two years. But in places like China, there is upside um, in the event that there is at least a reasonable sense of a possible deal. Healthcare. I have no idea where the regulatory framework is going to go for healthcare. I've got uh, candidates on stage saying, you know, we need to do this with healthcare, we need to do that with healthcare. It seems like there's a tremendous amount of regulatory and political overhang for healthcare. Do I even dare dip my toe into that space? So unlike the last election cycle, uh, 2015, 2016, healthcare came into the cycle expensive. It had had a very good run. Not the case this time. Healthcare is cheap on both an absolute and relative basis. So from our point of view, when you think about the fact that at least over the next year, the likelihood of legislation is is reasonably low because of gridlock, because of the election cycle, we think uh, you nibble on healthcare here. We're overweight. I want to go to my good friend Jim Kramer over at the Death Star CNBC. He was brilliant the other night talking about derivatives, which is your expertise, Julian, and the addiction people have of using put options to protect their gains and to protect their position. And Jim, of course, was saying, this is a really good way to to spend away your gains. You put out money on the put, to protect your gains, and you gotta keep doing it every 90 days and it becomes an addiction and the gains vaporize. Do you agree with that uh, view? I'm clearly in the camp with Jim on this. Put options and option strategies in general definitely have their place, but for the average buy and hold investor, it's not really the way to go. Why? Because you're a long-term thinker, and if you're rolling something over and you're paying attention to the screen every day, what's the price of my put? You lose sight of of the bigger picture, and the bigger picture is that the equity markets have been rising for 10 years. There isn't going to be a recession, and we expect Paul, jump in here. This is important, and it's also i got to redo the put every X number of weeks, months, 
and that costs me a price. And am I right? I lose a bit, some, most of my alpha. Of your proprietary, yeah, of your potential, of your gain on your uh, core position. I, I think, you know, what I've heard from a lot of investors is, you know, just have a you know disciplined trading strategy. If the stock's down X percent, I do this. If it's down this, I, I, I do that, as opposed to, again, paying for options, uh, unless you're going to be actively trading, I guess, you know. Right. And, and again, you, you know, there are plenty of people that we talk to that are very active traders and there's a definite uh, use for options in a portfolio strategy. But for the most part, what we've said throughout this bull market is that you need to envision yourself to be a buyer down 10 to 15 percent in the market. And if you can't say that now, this close to the highs, then the strategy is trim a little bit of your holdings. You'll sleep better. <laughs> Will you okay. sleep better, Tom? Yeah, I, I've you're, never you're, believed well, Tom's, in it. Tom's triple cash, you know. Well, I'm right, on the right. triple leverage all cash fund, <laughs> so you know, I really don't care. But, but I, I think it's a really. I mean, people are sold this. It's like call writing. They're sold this thing every day, and I'm like, and as Jim mentioned, I was like, where's the math? And the answer is the math's not there. <laughs> Once you're right, but the other seven times, you're you're buying a put option. You got nothing to do with right. Which actually, for, for people that, you know, have that view that on a one or two month time right. frame, you know, you want to hedge, we tend to like things, you know, where you're okay. selling an option and buying an option. Julian Emanuel, BTIG, thank you for that satisfaction. We need to go to Osaka, Japan now for team coverage. We do that with our Sean Don and working for Brendan Murray with really one of the toughest beats at Bloomberg, which is the whole international trade thing. So we go to Sean Donnan now on Red Sox, Yankees baseball in London. Sean, what do you think? I mean, I watched the Red Sox, White Sox last night. It's an afternoon game and I watched it. Sales lost it. Have you given up on the Red Sox for this season, Sean? Oh, that's a tough question to lead me in with, Tom. I'm a longtime Red Sox fan. You clearly picked up on that. I, uh, I look. This is just not the season, is it? It's a it's a tough one for the Red Sox. Is it? I used to live in London. I would have loved taking my kid to see that yeah. game uh, in London, but uh, my kid and I were trading text messages yesterday, and and neither of us is too confident yeah. going into the series. Are we too confident going into the uh, match in Osaka? We've got on Saturday an exceptional meeting, and the breaking news at Huawei is now part of the discussion. How will the U.S. team react to the Chinese insistence that Huawei be part of the discussion? Well, I think, we, I think first of all, we got a big question here, and that is whether these preconditions that the Wall Street Journal is reporting are really uh, preconditions for a bigger grand bargain. That's something that'll come later. Uh, what we're really ex expecting, what we've been leading up to here in, uh, in, in Osaka, and we expect to happen on Saturday still, I think, is, uh, is a, is a short-term truce. That's a resumption of talks, a pause in tariffs, uh, and another effort to try and, and push it and see a deal. There's no no doubt that the the Chinese want to see Huawei um, addressed as part of that, but I think it's pretty clear from the U.S. side that President Trump would be under a lot of pressure and would be heavily criticized were he to abandon the case against Huawei uh, in the next 48 hours just to get a, some more talks with the Chinese. So, Sean, I mean, from the Chinese perspective. What would they consider to be a successful G20? Are, are they would they be equally as content with just kicking the can down the road? 
I think at this point, both uh, sides really do want to see a pause in this and, and uh, a bit of a ceasefire, a bit of a regrouping on both sides. We know that the Chinese uh, negotiating team has been going through some, some revamping. They've brought in some new players, uh, some senior administration officials on the U.S. side have been noting that uh, in the last few days. Uh, we know that uh, neither side is, is ready for a full-blown escalation uh, and and the kind of final mark, the negative financial market uh, reaction that you'd likely get from that. So they want to manage the markets in the next 48 hours as much as anything, and that applies to both of them. I think. But at the end of the day, both yeah. these leaders, Donald Trump and Xi Jinping, need to come out of this looking strong right. for their domestic audiences. They you need to make sure that they haven't uh, given in or surrendered anything uh, at the table right. here in Osaka. Is this a multilateral meeting? I mean, have we given up the Pittsburgh, the G20 Pittsburgh of President Obama? Have we just, is multilateral done? That's a really good question. Donald Trump certainly, and, and people around him like John Bolton, would certainly like multilateralism to be uh, a done deal. Uh, but there's still uh, the rest of the world, and the rest of the world still want, is still pretty heavily invested uh, in these things, including the, the hosts here uh, this week, uh, Japan and uh, Shinzo Abe, uh, who has really put a lot of effort into, into getting some kind of result out of this. But there's no doubt that the big message we're all going to be taken away from this is that uh, it's the G2 that matters. It's, uh, it's the U.S. and China and, and the rest of the world uh, is really just watching them and trying to figure out where yeah. they're going. So, Sean, let's assume we, we do the kick the can down down the road. Is there any scenario or what, how likely do you think we get a meaningful trade deal in a relatively near future between the U.S. and yeah, China? Like five years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think five years you might get to something. Uh, I think, look, there, there, what are you talking Red still, Sox or trade? Well, I think, you know, the Red Sox had, had a big win last year, and we're still, you know, uh, we're still there. Uh, and we're still happy with that. Uh, I think Donald Trump uh, still needs to get a big win with China. Uh, and uh, yeah. I think that still pays more political dividends for him uh, going into okay. 2020 than a long grinded yeah. trade war and an escalation that may uh, uh, batter the U.S. economy going into yeah. the election. Sean, you're too young to remember Red Sox gloom, true gloom. We <laughs> used to look, we didn't look back to last year, Sean. We looked back to 1946. <laughs> that was a few years 1918. ago. 1918. <laughs> oh, listen to you. No, no, not that bad. Sean, thank you so much. Sean Donnan, uh, leading all of our trade coverage in Osaka and uh, a really daunting job and they'll be working through the weekend, uh, no doubt, uh, as well. To bring in our next guest, she, she's cleared her schedule. <laughs> cleared her schedule, they say. Her people talk to our people, and she cleared her schedule. Let me read this in entirety, Paul, to bring yep. in a qualified person. Power on. The new flight deck displays. New large flight deck displays inside the first 737 MAX have now come to life. Glowing panels indicating that power is now flowing through the first airplane on the production line. Power on is an important milestone because it is the first time systems on the airplane are integrated and talking to each other, <laughs> said 
Ms. Kelly, 737 MAX flight at first flight leader for airplane development. I have no idea what her title is. Power on is a step in airplane production. It typically happens during final assembly after all sections of the airplane are brought together and the wiring is connected. It's, but, a, it's built. It's ready to go. They it's turn on a switch. And it's ready to fly. But we have some problems with the 737 MAX. Brooke Sutherland, she covers all things industrial for Bloomberg Opinion. Brooke, thanks so much for joining us. Boy, Paris seems like a lifetime ago. You know, it was a good week for Boeing in Paris. I got sale of 200 737 MAX jets. Maybe the beginning of a turn there. Then we get news that there may be more problems with the MAX. What's the latest with Boeing? So the latest report is it's another issue with the flight computer on the 737 MAX, but this is separate from that MCAS system, the Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System that was wow. causing the... You remembered that. Good. <laughs> I did remember that. Written you, it you, enough you, times. I was going to say you've written it to okay. <laughs> memorize that. But no, that was at the heart of the two fatal crashes of the airplane, uh, both on the Ethiopian Airlines flight and the Lion Air flight. Now, so this is a separate issue, but again, involving the software, again, forcing that airplane into a dive downward. The last thing you want to hear is another issue causing the plane to unexpectedly dive in a way that pilots cannot get a, a handle on exactly what is happening there. You brought up the IAG order. They only signed a letter of intent. Oh. So they do have a fair amount of wiggle room to get out of that. If in fact, there was something wrong with the max Airbus has already said they would like very much to compete for that order and to fill it. Um, so if you're yeah. IAG right now, I have to be wondering, you know, how you feel about all of this. And you were, they yeah. really sort of stake their own credibility on the max. Maybe it's a question for the nerd at the Seattle times. that knows everything about all these planes. It's unfair to you, Brooke, but I'm going to try. Is there one computer on board? Because I remember the space shuttle has like five computer redundancy. How do they actually, do, do, I, I don't want to catch you unawares, but how do they actually do this? There are different software systems doing different things. And as you were talking about earlier, they're meant to all talk to each other, but there are different steps in this process. So my understanding is the actual um, software system was you know, built by right. Rockwell Collins, which is now owned by United Technologies, but Boeing set the criteria, at least for MCAS, as far as how that works. So how they wanted that to actually, um, you know, interact with the airplane. So there's a lot of different steps involved here, but I think, you know, certainly in a time when you have some consternation about whether or not planes are getting too smart and getting Can too- Can we bring back the stick and rudder, Tom? <laughs> there are some people that think that you should. I mean, I think there is a fine line between obviously you want software, you want innovation, but you also fundamentally the pilots have to be the ones ultimately in control of the airplane. What you don't want is situations like yeah, what happened with these Boeing systems where it's they can't bring it back to I mean, a I mean, point of control. Paul, pick this up, but I want to make clear, and I, I don't have it in front of me. I believe the news article today was a pilot in simulator saying they simulated a catastrophic loss whatever that means yeah this is serious this stuff. is serious i, I yeah. wonder brooke i think i guess it goes to if you're an investor you're saying when is the 737 going to be back in the air and i guess some of the recent reports i'd seen over the last several days were suggesting maybe december do you think that's now at risk so uh the bank of america analyst had a report out this morning that his timeline is still six to nine months total for the grounding so remember it was grounded in march so that would put us in sort of that september december time frame and he does not think that this 
swings that timeline. What Boeing has said is they, you know, don't want to put too fine a parameter on it. They just expect the plane flying by the end of the year. Now, reports indicate that there are conversations with suppliers that they've been a lot more aggressive about their timeline for getting that plane back up and flying again. So I honestly, I think it's anybody's guess at this point. I just think if you are the European regulators or the Canadian regulators, and you hear about yet another issue that was right. not discovered in the initial certification process, that's got to be make okay. you say, we're going to do an even deeper dive than we were already planning Get on. Get their PR. And of course, they, like every other major company, have a PR website. They've flown 30 billion passengers, B, equivalent to everyone on earth flying four times on a Boeing 737. Do they need the 737 MAX? They need the 737 or a plane like it. I don't know that they need the MAX. So what they've said is they want this. They expect it to fly for the next couple of decades. They think that the business it's model is working out well strong. right now. Yeah, not so much. <laughs> I, I disagree. I think they need to come up with a true successor to the 737 because a lot of these software problems this system was installed because they had to change the design oh, of the airplane on. to Stop. accommodate They're the bigger engines. They're trying to save engines. fuel to have bigger engines that are pitched forward X number of feet right. in front of the wings. And it that, ain't working. <laughs> I, I, I don't disagree with you. I just think the pressure is building on the company to come up with a real successor. They've said that they don't feel like they need to accelerate their timeline. Yeah, okay. I don't I don't agree with that well, at all. I think to, that they do. I'm flying to Nashville this afternoon on a 737. I'm just going to get on board like I always do. It'll get there. But it's not but a it's max. But it's not a max. It's, it's the old design, okay. so it doesn't have okay. the engine. Okay. Look, it's not let's the cut same. to the chase. <laughs> You're at gate 25. What's, what's my option? You're at gate 25 DCA. you got to get home. Because yeah. you got to go over the math homework. Sure. You look out, and it's a 737 MAX. Are you going to fly it? Sure. Well, okay. Brooke? <laughs> they've got one customer. You know what? I think Paul's right, though. Like, you don't have that much choice because you, it's a duopoly. It's Boeing or it Airbus is. at it's the a, end of the day. All right, like, Brooke, Brooke Sutherland. We're talking all things industrial America. To all of our audience worldwide across this nation, and particularly for 106.1 FM Boston, from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios in New York, uh, this is not only the interview of the day of your weekend, it's the interview of the day as you go within your house, within your home, staggering from fashion acquisition to fashion acquisition. The name Joseph Abood is legendary. He single-handedly Bought, brought a correct brown and beige back to fashion. Paul Sweeney, way before Fendi, he single-handedly dressed men out yep. of whatever the slum they were in, out of watching Kevin Costner and uh, Bull Durham, and he was absolutely definitive. So what we're going to do is Paul's going to dump into the business pen. I'm going to do a nostalgia thing at the beginning, but first of all, we welcome Joseph Aboot from London. Are you sitting behind the Red Sox or the Yankees dugout? <laughs> Okay, good morning to you and good afternoon, yeah. uh, Tom and Paul. How are you guys? Very good. Are you going to the game? That's all I want to know. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah, fortunately, I'll be going to both games, which is oh, historic as you and me. But I will be wearing, a two, I, I don't want to offend any New York listeners, but I will be wearing my Red Sox hat. That so, would be good. Um, no, we like that. It's my roots. That's, it's my roots, too, and we'll go with that. Your roots are the same as mine. When we were kids from different backgrounds, you would yeah. go down Newbury Street, and there was a historical building up on a pedestal sounded by a moat of green grass. Thank you, Rachel Slade, for a great article at Boston Magazine. And it was Louis. And Louis, folks, defined in America 
what was to come always five years and 20 years ahead of time. Joseph Aboud, what did you learn in Louis and where did it go? Right. Well, I uh, worked there for uh, for eight years, uh, actually 12 years and uh, four years in college and eight years after. And I, I didn't know at the time, but it was considered one of the top three men's stores in the world. Yep. People from all over the world came to understand where fashion was going. So if it, that was my undergraduate work, um, it was an amazing experience, Tom. I have to tell you, there are very few stores like it today, and it, it was, it, they were the best for menswear. So, Joseph, you're, you're in London right now. Um, as you walk yes. the streets, how do you compare kind of the men's fashions you're seeing today versus kind of what you see in New York and the rest of the U.S.? Yeah. Yeah. Well, certainly London is, is considered one of the fashion capitals. And I always use London as inspiration, not competition. And basically what I mean is I'll walk down Savile Row, which really is the origin of great menswear, modern menswear from around the world. So I take, I take inspiration from it. I do think that European men tend to be a little bolder about their fashion statements than we Americans, but uh, American men have made great improvements over these last 20 years. And, um, Tom, you certainly know the history of the things that that I've been through in the history of menswear. Uh, And we've seen this evolution where the millennials are now starting to get dressed again, that they're making custom suits and they're getting dressed up because they know that the suit, even though it's changing, is something that they need in their wardrobe. I mean, I'm looking at your website. I mean, you got sport coats here. I can't wear. I mean, they're way too, they're way too aggressive. Are we dressing up more for work now? And I don't mean Joseph. I mean fancy pants, Manhattan. I mean coast to coast, Joseph Abood. Are we dressing up more to work to keep the job? I think so. I think it's that face-to-face experience and first impressions are lasting. I think that's key. And the young guy is figuring out that he needs to present himself well. So it's not just all internet-based. It's face-to-face, it's instinct, it's intuition, and people want to have confidence in the people they're doing business with. And I know both of you guys have a, a sense of style and taste, and you realize that dressing appropriate is really important. And oh, young guys have haven't learned that yet. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you know, they think I'm terrible. I mean, the only reason they from New Jersey hires me Are you wearing your double-breasted suit today? That's all I wear. I, I mean, I, I do. I got that from Letterman, actually. Seriously. <laughs> well, right? well I can tell you, with your, you I well. believe you're wearing the bow tie today. I think you I got, saw you got that right, London, Justin. But, uh, uh, you know, that's a certain style. That's a professional style that a lot of guys adapt. They have their own personal style, and that's what I like to support, the individual guy, the guy that wants his own style. Are we buying so custom? Are we buying Joseph Abood custom or are we buying off yeah. the rack? Yeah, well, it's interesting. The biggest part of our growth, uh, right now is in the custom business. And we're seeing guys, and, and you probably remember this, that men used to buy custom only because they had to. Now guys are buying custom because they want to. They want to personalize and stylize. So our factory in New Bedford, Massachusetts is the largest in North America. We've got about 800 people there, and 60% of the production now is all custom. So it's a huge growth opportunity for us. So, Joseph, talk to us a little bit. When we talk about you know retail across the retail spectrum, it's really been challenged, yeah. the bricks-and-mortar retail yeah. uh, versus the That's online. Right. How does that impact the, kind of the fashion business? Well, it's interesting. If you talk about the category that we work in, in Tailored, it's very difficult to buy a suit online and to get your measurements correct. So retail, the bricks-and-mortars, their salvation is relevance. Their salvation is to make it theater to create an environment that just doesn't look like a place to just buy stuff. 
you really have to create an environment, especially for the new consumer, that is entertainment. So as we look to our stores in the future, that aspect becomes more and more crucial. But we know the value of having bricks and mortar where people can come in, touch, see, and feel. That's really important, especially when you're dealing with expensive clothing and the way things need to fit. When, when you look, Joseph Bode, at the future of our of our retail industry, I mean, you're in New Bedford, you're off of Cushnet Avenue. It's a really right. basic, massively historic town. I got to get dressed up because I got a business meeting at Tia Maria's downtown. And I, everybody's got that pressure coast to coast. I mean, it's there That's right. all, all the time. Where are we in five years in fashion? I mean... I, I, where's the trend? I'm, I'm looking out of our studios here at how everyone's dressed. And come on, it still looks like casual day. On the West Coast, we're all trying to look like Kevin Costner. Yeah. When does this end? Yeah, well, I think, that's, I think what's happening with the younger guy, if you talk five years down the line, the suit will continue to evolve, to be worn differently. Uh, a lot of guys are wearing suit with sneakers. It's not my favorite look. What? And it tends to be <laughs> fatty more than trendy. It, it's more fad than trend. But it's nothing like a pair of, you know, I just was on German Street here in London, and they have the greatest shoe stores you've ever and seen. Yes, yep. And those English shoes look great with a pair of jeans and a casual jacket. Oh, listen. But they me. have real character to them. So I, I think I've always tried to add character to clothes. Yeah. And I think that we will continue to evolve in style, but I do think yeah. dressing up is always appropriate for the for the appropriate occasion. The Abood Keen rule of sneakers is you can <laughs> yeah. only wear sneakers with a suit if you own a Tesla. If you That's own a Tesla. it. <laughs> exactly. So, Joseph, well, just real quickly before we go, I want you to spend a little bit more time talking about, which I think is one of the coolest parts of you and your story, is your manufacturing plant in Massachusetts. Just New Bedford. Us, yeah. yeah, it's just amazing. Yes. Well, um, when I launched a collection 30 years ago, Paul, it was um, – really important for an American designer to make in America. It's very cool to make in America today. You know, it seems au courant. But for me, from way back in 1987, the idea of being an American designer to make in America was great. And my partners were Italian, and we were able to really import Italian manufacturing technology into the heart of New England, into New Bedford. So I always say we have an Italian factory Uh, in New Bedford, Massachusetts. But it's an amazing place, uh, and it's, um, you know, the largest yeah. in North America, as I said. We got to go, but Joseph, I got one major complaint. Your website's yeah, so. gorgeous. Nobody in your website has a dad bod. <laughs> you know? <laughs> they're all like, they're all like these cut and chisel studs. Well, I want you to come into our store, and we will personally fit you. Oh, here we go. (laughs) Okay, this is like Joseph A. Bank, buy four, get six free, or whatever. Joseph A. (laughs) Boot, thank you, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.